just a word. I know that Tim has talked about this being baptism Sunday. You've seen a few baptisms already this morning. Here's the deal. This is, we don't just do baptisms one Sunday of the year. You, you know that. We do them throughout the year. Whenever somebody makes a decision to accept Christ as their Savior, that's when they're baptized. Doesn't matter the day, doesn't matter the hour, doesn't matter the, the time frame. We, we want to make that happen then. This day we just set aside as a target. Sometimes people just need a target to shoot for. You know, they've been putting it off. They've been delaying it, whatever the reason. And so we say, okay, if there's a day, maybe it'll help somebody just get off dead center and make that choice. And that's what this day is. Maybe that's that is what you're dealing with. And uh, if it is, I hope today uh, that all changes for you. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Today we begin a new series simply entitled, Guard Your Heart. It is based on this passage in Proverbs, but it will focus on what we can do to enhance our personal relationships, both spiritual as well as temporal. Now, I think the greatest potential joy in life is to be found in our relationships. Now, I say potential because our relationships can also be a point of pain and frustration. Sometimes that pain comes from others in our lives. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy when it comes to building relationships. So, in this series, over the next few weeks, we'll explore the emotional habits of guilt and anger, greed and envy, and so much more that oftentimes sabotages our relationships. We may not do it intentionally, but unless we get a handle on these emotions, we will destroy that which brings us our greatest joy. Now, I'm convinced, however, that we will never be able to improve our relationships with others until we get our relationship with God straight. That, 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 that becomes our number one priority. You see, because only the Lord can bring about heart transformation. When our relationship with God is solid, then I think we are best capable, best prepared to work on our earthly relationships. Get the one with God first and the others have a better chance of becoming good. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Tom, you speak of a relationship with God as if that makes perfect sense. I mean, how is that even possible? Relationships require two people working together to make it viable. How, how can we have a relationship with God? Well, that's a good point. How does one maintain a relationship with the invisible God? I mean, we're fond of saying that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But really, what does that mean? In my sermon three weeks ago, I quoted Gary Thomas who wrote this. He said, anyone can date God. The truly mature seek to be his faithful lifelong companions. Now, I want you to consider the context of that. Anyone can date God. Why do we date? What's the purpose of dating? Well, there's probably several, but I think the ultimate purpose is to get better acquainted with a person that we think might be a potential spouse. Early in the dating process, you, you know this to be true, it is more about the where and the what. Let's go to a movie. Let's eat at this restaurant. You see, we're looking for the things that we can do together. But with the passing of time, it becomes more about the who. As you grow to love the other person, it isn't so much about what you do or where you go. It's about just being together. Now, if she doesn't like fish, you stop asking her if she wants to go to Long John Silver's for that special evening out. <laughs> and if he can't stand chick flicks, then you stop asking him to go with you to the latest Hollywood romance movie. 
However, on the other hand, if you know his favorite meal is a fish sandwich, you'll suggest going to Long John Silver's, you'll have the chicken planks, and you'll have a good time. Or, if you know her favorite movie is a romantic musical, you'll offer to take her to one of those movies and you'll have a good time and you'll enjoy it because you know it's pleasing to her. And say, well, what's happening here? I'll tell you what's happening here. A relationship is building. And it builds by listening more than talking. It builds by seeking to understand what he or she needs or wants from this relationship. It builds by us changing our behavior to better accommodate the needs of the relationship. It's about pleasing the person you love. And that's not always easy because we tend to be selfish. We tend to be the ones that, well, it should please us. But that's not the way love really works. And so, well, that's, that's hard. Yes, but I don't ever remember reading anywhere that relationships are supposed to be easy. Anything worthwhile in life requires work, and relationships are worth the work and the investment. And eventually, we conclude that we can't live without one another, and so we get married and we start a new home together, and that often leads to another new relationship called children, and the joy just continues to grow. Now, apply that to our relationship with God. We believe that God is very much real and alive, that he's not some historic idol or wistful fantasy. After all, the whole basis for our faith is predicated on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he remains alive forever. What's more, he will someday grant us everlasting life in a new home. Does anybody else find it really interesting that in the New Testament, when God wants to describe the relationship between the church and his son, Jesus Christ, he calls the church the bride of Christ. In looking for an analogy, God uses the most precious, special relationship that we know, the relationship of marriage. And when time is done as we know it, and eternity begins, it will begin, as the book of Revelation tells us, with a wedding banquet celebrating the union of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Again, a picture of relationship. Now, I don't know if it will be a literal banquet, kind of hoping it is because I'm convinced in heaven food won't have calories. <laughs> but even if it's just a picture, even if it's just a word example, the image of a great celebration tells us that this relationship with the Lord is worth celebrating all the time. So how do we build a relationship with God? Well, we talk, but we listen more. We pray, that's the talk, but we listen more. That's why studying God's word is so, so vital. I mean, that's how we listen. God revealed himself to us through his word. And so when we listen to the word, it is God speaking to us. Now, God leads in other ways. I know that. But he's going to lead through his word. That's the listening. We need to seek to understand what the Lord wants and needs of us. We, exchange, we change our behavior to better accommodate the expectations and the needs of our relationship with the Lord. We strive to become who God wants us to be because we wear his name. You see, before there can be a date between two people, somebody has to ask will you go out with me? Now, the opportunity is there to, to say yes or no. Long ago, God took the initiative to ask, I want you to be a part of my family. I want you to accept me as your Lord and Savior. 
But the answer is solely yours to give. You can say yes, which I hope you do. Or you can say no, I'm not interested. There's this beautiful picture in Revelation that bears out that invitation, but that the choice is ours. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Jesus said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. There is something beautiful about the relationship that is shared around food at a table in a home. And Jesus said, I'm willing to have that relationship with you, but I'm, I'm just here knocking on the door. It's your choice whether or not I get to come in. And in every case, when someone new comes into a family, there is a moment of celebration. I remember well both of our daughter's births. The doctors and the nurses placed those girls in our arms on their various birthdays, and there was much celebration in our hearts. I cherish those moments, and I cherish my daughters to this day. And there's a moment in the adoption process when the judge signs the mountain of paperwork, and that child becomes legally a loved part of your family. There again is great joy and celebration. And I have yet to preside over a sad or angry wedding. On that day, both sides celebrate. I've, I've never asked the groom, will you have this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And he says, yeah, yeah, if I have to, I'll take her. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. There's a sense of joy and excitement in a wedding. And both families welcome new members into the family. I don't think of my sons-in-law as my in-laws. They are just a part of my family, and I am blessed to call them such. So does God have a moment like the first cry of a newborn or the state seal of an adoption paper or the words, I now pronounce you husband and wife? Yeah, I believe he does. Not because God needs it, but because we need it. I believe God's family celebration occurs at baptism. And I want to tell you why. Baptism symbolically is like a natural birth, like the change of a relationship in adoption, and like a marriage ceremony that unites two lives together as one. And it is unique in our spiritual experience in that unlike nearly everything else about our spiritual journey, we only are baptized once, just like we're born once, or we're adopted once, or we're married once. Yes, we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries, that's true. But those harken back to the moment in which that happened. You see, we are born into God's family once. Baptism is God's welcome to the family moment. Now the Greek word from which we get our English word baptize means to dip, plunge, or immerse. And that was the practice that we find in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's always talking about where there's a lot of water. In, in Acts chapter 8, it says that the Ethiopian who was on his way back to Ethiopia and Philip was teaching him about Jesus, they come to some water and the Ethiopian said, here's water, why can't I be baptized? Philip says, you can if you believe. And they went down into the water and the Ethiopian came up out of the water. You see this picture, this imagery throughout the scriptures. And while there are no baptisms in the Old Testament, all throughout God's word, he is preparing us for this ultimate passage in life. It's fascinating to me how God just keeps pointing forward to what's coming. In the opening verses of the creation account in Genesis, we read this in Genesis 1-2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's what you see. But in verse 7... 
or but seven verses later in verse nine, it says, and then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the gra dry ground appear. And it was so suddenly the waters part and there's the ground and life began to explode on the ground as God created it. It's as if God is saying that through the water comes new life. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Creation itself, you might say, began with a baptism. Six chapter later, God commands Noah to build an ark for the saving of his family and the animal kingdom. I, I've often wondered, God could have picked a whole lot of ways to cleanse the earth and start over. And, and save Noah and his family and a sampling of the animal kingdom all at the same time. Uh, he, he could have used a hurricane to come and destroy things. He could have used a fire that spread across the globe. He could have used some kind of a virus that spread across keeping Noah and his family and a sampling of the animals safe. God chose a flood. God chose a flood. It's as if he was saying that through the water comes cleansing and a new birth. As a matter of fact, Peter... The Apostle Peter uses this very story of Noah and the flood in his letter to the ancient church to remind them that our baptism, like Noah's baptism, separated us from the things of this world and is our pledge of allegiance and commitment to God. In Exodus, Moses and the recently released Israelites are on their way through the to, to, to their wilderness journey. They get to the banks of the Red Sea. There's a mountain on either side and the Egyptian army is bearing down upon them. They are trapped. There is no place to go. And then suddenly God does something that only God can do and he parts the waters of the Red Sea. There's a wall of water on the right and on the left and then there's the cloud of his presence over them and the Israelites walk through the Red Sea to the other side, to the other shore. And then when the Egyptian army enters, the walls of water collapse and they are finally permanently free. It's as if God is saying that through the water comes true freedom. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the Israelites being symbolically baptized into Moses as they pass through the sea and under the cloud. You getting this picture of what God's doing? In the book of Joshua, the Israelites finished their 40 years of wandering wilderness. They've come to the banks of the promised land and the Jordan is at flood stage. Bookends on a journey. They begin their journey by crossing the Red Sea. Now they've got to cross the Jordan. And when the priests step into the water with the Ark of the Covenant, the waters of the Jordan roll back several miles up and they walk across on dry land. It's as if to say that through the water comes the promise of home. You know what it's like to thumb through an old family photo album and the memories that come flooding back. That must have been what it was like for the Jewish people when John the baptizer starts baptizing people in the Jordan River. Why not the Sea of Galilee? Why not the Dead Sea? Why not some of the other tributaries? Why the Jordan? Because the Jordan brought back memories of, of God giving them life and eternity as they crossed over into this land. As a matter of fact, Jesus was baptized himself in the Jordan and it points back to the new life at creation. It points back to the rebirth through the floodwaters. It points back to the freedom of the Exodus and it points back to the hope that God gave us by giving us the promise of an eternal land. What a beautiful pageant is spelled out in these pictures and when we are baptized, we join this pageant of the ages. This is no small moment in time, folks. This is not one mere ritual to do. This is our personal participation in the eternal story of God that began with creation itself. 
Again, N.T. Wright states, this is why from very early on, Christian baptism was seen as the mode of entry into the Christian family and why it was associated with the idea of born again. And so it is my hope and my prayer today that if you've never been baptized, for whatever the reason, you've been putting it off or you just haven't thought about it, whatever the reason that today you'll take the moment, you'll seize the opportunity to make this commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, to some, the act of baptism sort of seems odd and baffling. But once you understand its symbolism and its poignant significance, it makes perfect sense. What's the most important thing to us in our faith journey? Why, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the pageantry that's portrayed in the act of baptism? Nothing less than the death and the burial and the resurrection. You saw it earlier in the service just a few minutes ago. Down into a watery grave, back up, eyes open and movement. When we embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, something dynamic, incredible happens internally. Let's read about it. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture that has to do with baptism. It's Romans chapter 6. I'm just going to ask you to do something with me. It's going to come up on the screen here. I'm going to start, read it out loud together. Will you join me? Just let's, let's read it together. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now something incredible happened to you when you became a follower of Jesus Christ. Something dynamic. You probably didn't feel it. I, I, I didn't feel it. But it was monumental. When you said, I want Jesus to be my Savior, when you were baptized into him, you died to sin. I died to sin. And we died in our allegiance to the past and to the things of this world. And when someone dies, there's a burial. You get the picture of what's going on here? So what does it mean to die to our sin? It means doing the right thing. The godly thing becomes our number one priority. It means that we strive to avoid the people, places, and things that tempt us most. It means that we've changed direction. We're now walking toward the light instead of toward the darkness. And it means that sin no longer has power or dominance in our lives. Remember, building a relationship is changing behavior to better accommodate the expectations and the needs of that relationship. God calls us into a relationship. What kind of behavior change should I expect if I'm going to wear his name? When a U.S. president pardons a person, when, a, when the president issues a pardon to somebody that's perhaps in prison, it does not change his guilt or innocence. The person might, might indeed be guilty, but the president chooses to pardon that person. But it certainly changes their standing with the law. No longer can they be charged with that crime. They are free, regardless of their past, 
because the president has given a pardon. The old charge is gone. The Apostle Paul says that when we are baptized, we crucify the old self and our relationship to sin is buried once and for all. Baptism doesn't make us sinless, but it certainly changes our standing with the law of God. The old charges against us are gone and we stand in Christ before God. Now, do not think that baptism is some meritorious work. I mean, you, you don't do this to earn God's grace. I mean, you're not baptized to kind of schmooze with God. It's a completely passive thing. As a matter of fact, it, it's the most passive thing we do. We do. You, you, you can't baptize yourself. That's why John got this title, John the Baptizer. It was so unique, there wasn't anything else going on like it. You, you must submit to baptism. It is something that is done to you. You, you are the person who is letting somebody else do this for you. Uh, but in, in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses the word united with Christ in reference to baptism. That means literally grown together like a branch grafted into a tree. As a matter of fact, folks, you can't crucify yourself. You, you remember it says we are crucified with him? You can't crucify yourself. I guess you could nail one. Uh, you, could, you could hammer one nail into your hand, but how you, how you going to get the nail in the other hand? Onto the cross. You see, crucifixion is something that willingly or unwilling you have to submit to. See, see this beautiful picture in baptism. As we submit to baptism, we are crucified with him. The old dies and we bury it. And this picture of submission is where we struggle. Salvation is, is not found in the act of water or the water itself. It's not as if the deed is enough or there's something that we put in the water that makes it powerful. Our slogan is not once baptized, always sanitized. That's not what we believe. It is once and for all the sacrifice of Christ that makes possible the forgiveness of our sin. However, it is in the one-time act of baptism where we identify with that very event. In the book of Acts, the history book of the ancient church, baptism always followed immediately on the heels of a person's profession of faith and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord. But I believe it's not all the good things the Bible tells us about baptism that's our problem. I think it's the submission part. We don't like the word submission. I'm not fond of it. You're not fond of it because it means I'm no longer in control. I kind of like being in control of my life. How about you? Let's be honest with her. We like having a certain amount of control about things. But when I give my life to Christ, I'm basically saying, I'm no longer in control, Lord. You are. There have been a handful of times in my life when I've had surgery. To have surgery, it requires a couple different things. First of all, it requires a competent surgeon. Number two, it requires my submission. There's something that happens as the anesthesiologist begins to give you that which will put you out so they can do the surgery. And just as he says, okay, here we go. And, and you begin to feel yourself drifting away. That, that moment right before the lights sort of go out, you realize my life is now completely in the hands of another. That's an act of submission. When, when you come to Christ and you give him your life, it is saying my life is now in the hands of another and I trust him with my eternity. Some surgeries are life-saving surgeries if you do not submit if you do not surrender you'll die 
It is so with baptism. It is this consistent one-size-fits-all act of submission in which everyone can participate. Everybody can make this choice. So let me sum it up this way. In baptism, we are reborn, chosen, loved, washed, adopted, set free, crucified, and promised an eternal home. We are identified as God's own, then assigned a place and job in his family. And so we come to this question, should I be baptized? And I'll tell you what I think, and it's just one word. Yes! Absolutely yes! And it should be done with enthusiasm and excitement, not with the roll of an eyes or a condescending, okay, if I have to, I'll do it, kind of spirit. It should be one of the most joyous and exciting moments of your spiritual journey. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you want to follow him and surrender your life to him, but you haven't been baptized, then I'm convinced God wants you to do that. And there is no better time than now. My grandparents used to talk about breaking the ice on the, on the farm ponds to baptize people in the winter. We don't do that here. This is warm water, all right? I've heard stories of people being baptized in swift-moving streams where the preacher lost a little bit of the handle and the person got swept down the stream. This has got walls on it. That's not going to happen over here. We make the whole issue so much harder than it is. We battle with questions like, is baptism necessary for salvation? Or what if a person's stuck out in the desert and there's no water and they're about to die? Or at what moment is the person actually saved? Well, unless you understand the mind of God and understand the heart of the person who's being baptized, those questions make no sense. They just complicate the matter. If you're stuck on the third floor of a burning building and someone calls 911 and the dispatcher notifies the, the fire station and the fire trucks rush to the scene and a crew hoists a ladder up to the third floor window and a firefighter makes his or her way up that ladder to the window to help you out and you get down and you are safe, are, are you concerned about what moment it was that you were actually saved? And who's responsible for that? Who cares? You don't worry if it's the person who placed the call or the dispatcher or the truck or the ladder or the fire people. You just know that if it hadn't been for everything coming together, you'd be lost in that third floor fire. You see, the best question is not the what and how and all that kind of stuff. The best question is when. When can I do this? Like the Ethiopian said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? You can. And if nothing else compels you, what about the baptism of Jesus? What about the baptism of Jesus? He didn't need it, but he said it's the right thing to do. I guarantee it'll be one of the more memorable moments of your life. I, I do remember it as if it were yesterday. I was 12 years old. It was uh, April the 2nd, 1967, 51 years ago. It's this baptism in my old home church that's, that's not even there anymore. The, the church building is gone, but it was sort of a curved wall, and there was a picture of, on, on the wall behind it, a, sort of a semi-rickety pair of wooden steps that led down the baptistry, and there was this curtain around, around it, and there was a person stationed behind that when you and the preacher got into the water, they would pull the cord, and the curtains would rise, and there the whole congregation was watching and I remember after I came up out of the water, the curtain came down as if to say, the curtain on the past has closed. A new life is beginning. It is one of the most joyous moments of my life. One might call it like a, a wedding celebration. This ring is now uh, 41 and a half years old. 
Elsie gave it to me on the day that we pledged our lives to each other. It's, it's worn with time. The, the little circles that are on it are not nearly as pronounced as they once were. There's scuffs and, and a few little knocks on it, but I wouldn't trade it in this condition for a brand new one because it represents the ups and downs of a lifelong journey that, well, is reflected in the pledge made when she placed that ring on my finger and I placed one on hers. We committed our lives to each other, just as baptism is that moment when we pledge our lives and commit ourselves to Jesus Christ. God knows what's in your heart, but boy, this gives you a moment to, to point back to. So, guard your hearts by surrendering your heart's allegiance to Jesus Christ. Guard your hearts. This will be the greatest relationship you will ever experience, knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.